That is not something that you can look at and say, oh, that's really sad. That should be something that we say, those are children of God. Those are beautiful. That, that is Jesus who is suffering such emotional peril that he took his life. Mm. And that is on you and that is on me and that is on all of us. And again, it's, this is not a shame message. This is hopefully a message of conviction that we have such a radical potential to change the world. That we can actually change the world. And that it starts with you and me being passionate enough to say, we want to change the world. We must change the world. How can we convince other people to be on our side, to be a part of this mission to change the world? Welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. This is Char. And this is Byron. This is our last episode for this season of our fall semester of our middler year. Yeah! Uh, we've been getting the hang of things in a new environment, so we haven't had quite as many episodes for y'all as we normally do, but hopefully we've been... Dropping some pretty good content on you. I think I think our episodes this semester have been pretty cool. There have been some spicy ones, there have some been wild some spicy ones. ones. And for today, this is going to be a very special one for me. What we'll be talking about is, I would say, the only thing that I consider myself an expert on. There are a lot of things that I have a lot of thoughts on, um, but I think I would actually consider myself an expert in the topic for today. Yay! <laughs> um, so we will be talking about a radical Christian economic praxis, mm-hmm. specifically around the idea of wealth redistribution and a Christian relationship to property and wealth. I'm just waiting for you to say the word money. And money, <laughs> like you haven't money, said yes. the word money yet. Wealth like, and, and money, the, all the monies, the, the, cho- the change, the coins, the bills, the capital, the capitalism. Capital what, fellow? Yes. Great, so, cool. I'm excited. Yes, I will say to all y'all listeners, uh, this is something that I am writing a book about, and I'm always looking for feedback, both in terms of, hey, I love what you're saying. Have you thought about this thing too? Or you could even go further in ABC. Or I hate what you're saying. This is totally wrong for ABC reason. Why are you not seeing me in this part of my existence? Yeah, you'd be rich if you read the Bible more. (laughs) All of that is actually super helpful for me. And so I would say we always love to hear from you all. But myself, particularly for today's topic, please, 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 an email, a post, mm-hmm. a share, any of it. I, a share? A share. Yes, that. That which is sharing. <laughs> We're all about the sharing today. So with that, I guess I will start by giving a little bit of context sure, to this. Sure, yeah. Define your terms. Yes. So we have talked a lot about 
both the philosophical theologies like astrotheology, um, which have the potential for practical implications, but it's a practical implication that we haven't yet come to. So in that sense, it's all theoretical. Mm-hmm. We've also talked about some very practical theologies like blackness and whiteness and uh, what does it mean to be in this world given our present-day uh, racialized societies. Yes. And, and those have very real implications about how we live our lives and how we live our lives as Christians or believers in God. I would say, yeah, and both of those are kind of social or philosophical. We've also, like, addressed things that are, like, purely theological as well. Like, sure. Like prayer or joy or... And, and hopefully, as this is, you know, I consider this a public theology podcast. This is, this is an engagement with society in yeah. conversation that even when we're talking about things like hope and prayer and stuff, that it has practical implications about how our prayer life leads our engagement with society. Right. right, how, right. how hope is something that can bring actual tangible impact to people. Right. I'm just creating a, these categories of like philosophical, practical, theological. Yeah. And awesome. I think this one actually lies at the heart of kind of all three. I would say so. So starting with the practical, because I do think that when we pursue God, this is a liberation theology idea that orthopraxis actually steers orthodoxy. And then it, and then it goes in a, in a cycle that it, it, the orthodoxy informs the orthopraxis and, in, and then the cycle continues. So these terms, orthopraxis, we've talked about it before, but it essentially means right practice, orthodoxy being right belief. And so the idea in liberation theology is that you are guided by God within you, that your compassion comes from your inherent connection to God, whether it be the Imago Dei or the Jesus within you, the Spirit of God within you, whatever language you want to use to describe Mm -hmm. it, there's a recognition that we are still in relationship with God and that God is moving within us. And so when we feel that conviction on our hearts that we engage we must reflect on that after and be like why was that a holy thing because i felt that and knew that was holy Mm. um and then we understand retroactively what that says about god and then we use that to inform our continual involvement so it's not a hard and fast rule i don't want to say that theology can't be done in a vacuum but i think it is dangerous it is it is actually harmful if we consider theology something that starts entirely in our own head in our concepts as opposed to something that starts from the real need and what that need says about what is good right um i think the reason i'm putting on my squinty eyes squint away um is grounded in perspective grounded in like personal need and engagement and things like that right um but whose? Because the the whose need? Who n- not so much whose need? Because I I was hearing a little bit of that, but I was hearing honestly more of this sense of uh, experiential, like the the practical. Oh, I uh, what I heard from you just now is this sense of like, oh, I felt that. You know, that was a holy experience, and then mm-hmm. investigating it. Well, frankly, asking someone to give away their money, and I'm sure we'll get here, mm-hmm. doesn't feel like a holy experience necessarily. So like. In, unless you've changed their heart first or unless you've you've forced it and then, like, get them to see the positive reactions later. Uh, I, I'm just curious because 
it, it shouldn't become like a numbers game, yeah. right? It shouldn't yeah. be like, oh, well, some people or most people or whatever experience this as holy. Sure. Right. I mean, this is, this is the, I, I hate to push back against experience because, you know, as a queer theologian, it's, it's critically important as, as an embodied human, it's critically important, but I am curious about the subjective aspect of it and the numbers game. Yeah, is that a pin that you could hold for a little bit? Because sure. I can hold. You've it. you've heard me talk about this a lot. You know my thesis. I haven't actually said my thesis yet. No, you haven't. <laughs> um, but I wanted to start with this context of recognizing that the world we live in is one with a lot of brokenness, mm. and it is a world that has had brokenness since at least the beginning of civilization, in in the way that we understand our brokenness today. Prior to this construction of civilization, there still was need and survival was absolutely dictating. I mean, you think about any species and there is a sense that it, part of its existence is survival. You know, but, but civilization as this notion of uh, building social structures that organize how human life is steered has given power to hierarchy that they become leaders and, and subjects, or they become elite and the non-elite. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more organized a society, the more differentiation there is between these rankings. Um, that, that's been the, the trend through history. Um, but since the beginning of civilization, there has been suffering. There has been a disparate spread of possessions that there are those who do not have enough and there are those who have more than they need i don't know if this is universally true but certainly today there's far more than enough resource Mm -hmm. to meet all the need that is present Mm -hmm. i think in terms of population spread there's some sociologist or someone who has uh done a comparison of like when societies expand and how they have a certain amount of resource and then they expand um but there seems to be this trend that there's always enough um, that technologically we're developing greater agriculture that is that is constantly um, predicting and, and and preempting the spread the the growth of the human population. Right, like technically, using certain technologies, we could produce enough food and resources and things to sustain nine billion people. Sure, or, we or probably already are. Um, I, I think currently we're producing enough for 10 billion people. Well, 10 billion people with like moderate consumption, or what do you mean? Is the, is the rest being a, thrown away? Is it being that's luxurized? A great, that's a great question. I mean, if we look at, and this is going a little tangentially here, but um, a lot of the crops that we produce are not even being used for food. So that might be part human of Human food or? Well, human food or food at all. But yes, human food is specifically because most of it is, becomes like cattle. Yeah fodder or even fish food sure um but again the the broader picture here that i want to emphasize is that need has always been present in our world uh in the book of deuteronomy there's this quote that jesus references Mm -hmm. and i won't dabble too much in biblical (laughs) apologetics although i could do that i find it interesting um but it's as you've talked about in queer theology apologetics is inherently reactionary and we need to move the conversation beyond just a reaction. Mm-hmm. That it's not just a response to the current broken nature of things and, and the violence toward a community or toward an idea, 
um, but to be able to dive even deeper and further. So anyway, quickly, Deuteronomy says, the poor will always be among you, which Jesus quotes. But then the response to that, it says, therefore, you must always have an open hand to the foreigner, to the poor in your midst. Mm -hmm. That the message isn't a complacency in injustice, but a universal command towards compassion, towards generosity, towards meeting the needs that are present mm-hmm. to, to a healing presence. And so that's the starting point for what is my thesis, which I will get to now, <laughs> that considering we have enough resource to meet everyone's need, it is, in my mind, incumbent upon the church to meet that need. And in as much as it is not meeting that need, it is failing to embody the love of God and the command of God. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it is antithetical to God's will and the Christian call to be rich and to be tied to the notion of private property. The idea of saying, this is mine, is, I think, inherently part of this violent ideology. And so I do not think that you can be a Christian and believe in private property. Now, we've got a long ways to go to change both of those things. But I believe, in fact, I'm confident, looking at not even just the world's wealth, but the church's wealth. Mm -hmm. And I mean that both the institutions of the church and the members of the body who call themselves Christians, Mm. that we have more than enough wealth to end global poverty. Yes. That any issue that we see in our society, and when we talk about injustice, it is highly intersectional. Um, I think at its root, the human desire craving for power could be termed empire. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is the accumulation and this constant sense of building, of becoming bigger and more powerful. I think even on an individual level, that aspiration I still think is empirical. So, so I w- you're saying even without it coming at the cost of someone else, it's still... I think it inevitably will come at the cost of someone else. I don't know how that could exist without causing someone else harm. If you not only have the desire, but you, are, you have the ability to grasp that power, that is being taken from someone else. It, it is breaking relationship it is breaking harmony so it's a zero-sum game not entirely but but it there will always be a consequence if there is there will always be a negative consequence to the development of empire so i would say historically speaking we can look at empire and say strategically it is employed on a sociological front the notion of xenophobia at its at its broadest Xeno meaning foreigner, phobia meaning fear. I would go further than phobia to say, you know, it's, it's a dehumanization, it's an antagonism, it's a violence. But the idea that if I can have a people that are serving me be afraid of something else rather than afraid of me, that can be weaponized in order to maintain and uh, further expand my power. Hmm. So the idea of nations at all. <laughs> why, why are we not one nation? Why are we not one people? 
it's not to say that there's nothing beautiful about culture and language and that which makes us diverse. I'm not trying to reject any of that. But the idea of saying that we draw our division here and you are the other is recipe. It is grounds for xenophobia. It is grounds for making that other not an equal, to making them something that we are afraid of. Um, now, xenophobia, which I would consider more the umbrella term, houses racism. That the idea that an other is different based on skin type, phenotype, culture, um, such that we would consider them less having claim to the identity that I share. That there's a, there's a distinction that draws this fear or this violence that leaves room for me to dehumanize and exploit and cause violence upon another people based on the color of their skin, based on their ethnic and cultural background. That it, I would consider that, in the terms that I'm using, under the umbrella of xenophobia. Um, and so that has been, in our society, this sociological arm of empire that has allowed for the development of empire. Now, on a structural level, in terms of the systems that are in place, economics has been the primary form of, of a mechanism to maintain and, and create power differentials, which is why you will always see where the poor are a disproportionate amount of people who are marginalized for the racial identity. Mm-hmm. It is, these are the arms of empire that are working together. And we could also talk about other forms of oppression and, and find a way that it fits under this, this umbrella of empire. But I think um, to simplify the conversation just a little bit for this short podcast, um, looking at racism or xenophobia more broadly as the sociological arm and then economics as the uh, structural or mechanistic arm of empire. These are the mediums through which empire operates. Yes, exactly. And so in that way to affiliate with or to indulge in the rhetoric of economics that says that you are entitled to a certain possession is feeding this ideology. It's feeding the structure. When we look at the idea of uh, transaction through capital, it is a third party, you know, that moves beyond bartering, um, which already that idea of trade is rooted in distrust. That I can't trust that you have need right now. Let's say you don't have any milk um, and I have a cow, you know, dairy cow, whatever. Um, I have this milk production. I could give you some of my milk, but I don't trust that when I have need for eggs that you will give me back eggs. And so I'm going to make sure that I get my eggs now, even if this isn't the time that I most need them. You know, that idea of bartering is rooted in distrust as opposed to a communistic economic relationship. And I don't mean when I say that uh, the authoritarian system of communism that most people associate from the Red Scare. I'm, that's not even in the conversation right now. I'm not saying anything pro or against that. 
what I'm saying is the communistic economic praxis is, is rooted in the idea of from each according to their ability to each according to their need. That if I have the ability to meet your need, I should do that. And it's, and it's rooted in trust because I'm giving and now later I will be in need. But I am trusting that when I have need and you have the ability to meet that, that you will meet my need. So trade, barter, and then to capital as a third party, that third party capital actually gives us even more distance from the relationship. It's still rooted in distrust where now we have this supposedly objective measurement, which, you know, in itself is a social construct mm -hmm. um, that holds, that retains that value. So a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. And I will now sell you my milk for $5. And then with that $5, I can buy your eggs or I can buy, you know, bread from someone else or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that means that theoretically, I don't even have to engage with you as has been become the case now where if we were just bartering, just trading, we could never get to the level of economic exploitation that's happening today. Mm. Now we have factories across on the other side of the world where they're falling apart and people are dying or people are working with backbreaking labor um, to highly exploitative uh, wages that hardly cover what their needs are so that some person on the other side of the world can make as much as possible. That is only possible because of an economic practice of distrust. So I believe, and I think scripture attests to this too, that a communistic relationship to economics that says, should I have the ability and should you have the need is my Christian duty to meet your need and to trust that when I have need, that if you have the means, the ability, that you will meet my need. Who is, who is the you in this equation? So we are now in a globalized society. Right. And so that you has become the, the world. I actually have the ability to meet some person in Sierra Leone's need. You know, I, I could meet the need of an orphaned kid in Cambodia, you know, or in my back door in the U.S., it's not to point it always to the other side of the world, sure. but to, you know, to say that we have access to the whole world. And that means that the responsibility is greater. Globalization is more power, and with more power comes more responsibility. Right? If I had no ability to even know about the people over there, much less help anything that they're doing, I can't be responsible for that because there's literally nothing that I could do. Mm -hmm. But if I do have the ability to and I do not do it. This gets to that um, Galtung quote, Johan Galtung, mm -hmm. Norwegian uh, sociologist, who says that um, violence is the differential between the potential and the actual. Meaning, um, if you have the ability to do something and you do not do it, that is violent. So if we have the ability to cure a disease and we do not cure it, we are being violent to all the people who are dying under that disease. Right. Or theologically or confessionally, forgive us, O Lord, for the things that we have done and left undone. Yeah. And we, we can't be held to account for the things that we cannot do anything about. Like if someone had cancer or a proto-cancer back in Jesus's day and they had no medication, no nothing that could address it, mm. you know, they can pray and they can do their best, but they're not violently responsible for that person's death to something that they literally can't do anything about. Mm -hmm. Um, our obligation is to do our best. 
And when our best has the potential to address it and we do not address it, we are not doing our best. Yeah, I think in in your very idealized image that goes beyond addressing, right? Because unfortunately, we also participate in in systems that are cause right like like the true cost of uh of like a, a hamburger or something. Sure. I don't know, right? Like the true cost is not what you're paying because mm-hmm. like economics and and people who are selling you stuff aren't taking into account the the environmental cost or the mm-hmm. like all sorts of like hidden costs all throughout the process. Um and so like calculating any of these things is difficult. It is difficult and I would say that we are still responsible in all that difficulty. It's not to claim that any of us will be perfect, but I think that we are still held to the standard of perfection. And that's where the grace of God comes in. The idea that uh, it's not just about, the commandment was not just about do not murder, but if right. you even have anger right. in your heart, the, yes. you even have any, any anger in your heart, you've already committed murder. If you have any lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. If you've done anything internally, or, you know, based on negligence when we could do something, we, we are held to the full account of the law in the sense of um, the severity of what is being commanded of us. Now, I would actually argue, and I think this is really important, that that is a beautiful thing. The fact that we're, we are held to such a standard is to be in, honored and given respect in our relationship with God, in God's perfection. Right, the respect of a high standard, uh, among other things. Um, actually, remembered what the thought was. Yeah, uh, it's. I think it's Calvin, who says behind every like negative commandment, there is the positive adjuration of of what therefore we are commanded to yeah, do, yeah. not only not to do. Right, thou shalt not murder, doesn't mean like, you know, you're only culpable once you have crossed that absolute line and and murdered someone, mm-hmm. but the positive commandment there is to value life yeah all life um and i i think that's what i'm i'm hearing in your kind of high standards narrative absolutely absolutely and i think this is a good time to say this this is not a shame message this is not a guilt message i think guilt i go back and forth on guilt i think i think sometimes there is place for guilt uh, when I use these terms, shame is uh, saying I am bad. It is introspective, looking at myself, and retrospective, looking at the past. Um, so because of something that happened, I am bad, right? Yeah. Um, guilt is also retrospective, but it is external. It is looking at this thing that happened or this thing that I did as opposed to me. So this thing that I did was bad. Guilt can easily lead to shame Mm -hmm. because I did this bad thing, I am bad. But it is a separate thing. And then conviction is both external and prospective where it's saying, um, this is what could become. Mm -hmm. Um, So the message of the gospel is we feel these tensions with Jesus saying both my yoke is easy and my burden is light, but also pick up your cross and follow me. We see this radical love of the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd who seeks out the lost sheep, who will never leave the lost sheep abandoned. And yet also I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I mean, this is probably for a separate episode, um, how we wrestle with these tensions. But Jesus did not give a small message. 
but Jesus gave a good message. And what I see in his teachings is that he doesn't dump the entirety of his message on just anybody. Now, first and foremost, he even said to his disciples, you can't handle all of the truth that I have to offer. Hmm. You know, he says that to them. But we look to what he says to people who approach him, and for the most part, he's answering their questions. You know, he's answering their, their questions with a really profound answer, but he's not like, oh, wait, now let me tell you the most important part of my message. You know? So what we see with the rich young ruler or the rich young man, he approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, A, B, C, D, E, you know. Um, and he says, check, I've kept those since my youth. Give me the next assignment. Give me the step deeper in relationship with you. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so I think in that love, there's a sense of like, okay, you want to hear the next part? Well, let me tell you the next part. Go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. People will contextualize that and say, oh, this was only meant for him, but it's because he kept asking. And I think if any of us kept asking Jesus... That would be the answer. That would be the answer. I, I One small... Yeah. I don't know if this is just a textual criticism Please. or something, but notably, so Jesus doesn't respond with all Ten Commandments. Yes. He hands a handful of them over, and notably absent is, what is it, number six or something? Don't covet. Yeah. The ones about idolatry are all the ones that are left out. Right. I mean, even the first commandment, um, right. I shall have no gods before me. Right. Um, so there was a rhetorical thing he was doing there, certainly. And so whether it's a step deeper or whether it's, you know, the the meaning behind the original ten yeah. or whatever, that the commandment was. Absolutely. There, there was an implication that he had already committed idolatry, in yeah. fact, and hadn't kept even that level of ten rules. Yes. Because no, it's not about rules. Yeah, it's not. It's not. That's a very good point. Um, you know, I think we can look to other disciples. good example would be Matthew. Uh, he was a tax collector. There's nothing in the story of him following Jesus that says that he stopped being a tax collector, that he renounced his ways, that he gave back the money like Zacchaeus did. You know, it you don't have to be perfect to follow Jesus. Nobody's perfect. Peter denies him three times. Judas betrays him. You know, these are the people who are following Jesus. They're sinners. Mm-hmm. So the idea of saying, oh, because Joseph of Arimathea was rich and was following Jesus, that means that you can be rich and be a Christian. It's like, well, sinners follow Jesus. And the goal in an ongoing developing relationship with God is to shed those layers of our own uh, brokenness, that, that, that we enter deeper and deeper into relationship where we uh, give up our, our securities, the things, our worries for tomorrow, you know, the, the ways that we are causing harm upon another. And, and dive deeper into relationship and trust with God. And so I think we see with Barnabas, you know, it's a little bit later in the story in Acts when he sells his house. Um, he wasn't ready yet. And he was then. Mm-hmm. So I think, and again, I'm, I'm starting to get into the biblical stuff here and there's a lot to unpack there, which I do want to share at least some of. 
Um, but to me, the important thing to keep coming back to is the reality of our present day and age, that we have a world with so much need and God calls us to be lovers and healers of that brokenness, that we've been commissioned as the church, as the body of Christ, to be healing the world, to do the work of God. And if we see need, we see potential and we do not engage, we hold back even if it's because of our own sense of uh, lack of imagination to imagine a world where the whole church could be the church. You know, I think that that's often the issue that I have um, that I face with people. One of the biggest questions is if I sold my possessions and gave to the poor, then I wouldn't be able to help anyone anymore. Then I'm poor. And my first thought is, well, good job. You've helped people thus far, <laughs> you know, with the, with the wealth that you've redistributed. Um, but my bigger question is that approach, that thought is so individualistic, which of course is how our society has taught us to think. And that's how capitalism teaches us to think. But the idea of one person having their right relationship with the need of the world, um, it's, it's not the construct that the Bible gives us. The, the Bible is coming from an Eastern perspective that is a lot more collectivist than we are. We've internalized it and interpreted it a lot where Jesus is our Lord and Savior individually. My, sorry, my Lord and Savior, not our mm -hmm. Lord and Savior. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas Jesus teaches us to pray our Father, not my Father. You know, um, the sense of a household being saved um, because one person, the, the patriarch or the matriarch, you know, like these are collectivist ideas. Um, and I think if we, we look at the church as a collective and say, we have the capacity to heal the world. Then we can say, as an individual who's part of that collective, what does it look like for me to be pushing the collective toward that end? And I think part of it starts with an individual sense of redistribution. But that has to be coupled with community. Nobody can do it on their own. Right. I mean, it's kind of like addressing climate change. We're not going to do it by planting your own pickles in the, or again, like tomatoes in the backyard. Sure. But, you know, I think similarly with climate change, yes, there are big companies that are plowing their way through the Amazon and, and that absolutely needs to change. And we do need to talk about structures and not just the individual reaction. But planting a tree does make a difference. It's a small difference, very small difference, but it is a difference. And I don't think we can discount that. You know, the, the idea that corporations spread this propaganda about the need to recycle to take mm. the pressure off their back is absolutely valid. And I don't think that discounts the significance of recycling. What it's saying is that's not the biggest problem. That's not the place where we should put our attention, our efforts. But I think even with the idea of recycling is it's like, well, one person recycling, sure, maybe they're not saving the environment, but their perspective on caring for the environment changes. By recycling, you start to care more about the environment. You're thinking about it. You're engaged with it. You know? Debatable. But but yeah, that, that gets off to a... And, and let's say planting trees then, right? Metaphor. You know, and, and gardening. You know, the, like the, the more that you engage in it, the more that you yourself are transformed. Yes. And then by being transformed, you can transform others. That you can convict others. So I think it is in itself righteous for one person to sell their possessions 
even if it's taking outside of the whole collective. But the goal should be a collective transformation, and we need to do it together. I mean, I like to think about a body in terms of its immune response, that it's not just one white blood cell that's like, I'm going to defeat this disease. Mm. You know, sometimes, now we want to talk about martyrdom for a second, the cell actually goes to die to take information about what it's fighting to send it back to the rest of the immune system, mm. which is kind of wild. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying anyone should go out there with an unsustainable plan in motion. I think that sustainability, though, is in trusting God rather than trusting ourselves. Because for almost all of us, you know, it's save some in the bank, have a job that has, you know, good health insurance and uh, make sure your fridge is full with food and uh, that your car is filled with gas and that you have a 401k, a retirement plan set up or whatever. And it's not to shame or judge any of these practices in themselves, but it's to reflect on how we have a culture of insecurity, that we need to secure for ourselves our tomorrow because we are afraid of what would happen if not for that. And I don't know about you, but I'm not expecting if my fridge is empty for God to miraculously fill it. You know, that's, that might be a fault of my faith, or maybe it is an important aspect of being a rational person. <laughs> but I, I don't expect that if my fridge is empty that it's going to be filled on its own. However, what if we thought about the body of Christ as, in fact, God's providential moving in the world that that we as the body of Christ are commissioned and commanded to be doing that providential work of God so when in Matthew 6 Jesus says consider the sparrow who neither sows nor reaps nor lays its nest and yet its father in heaven takes care of it how much more so does your father in heaven will your father in heaven take care of you mm-hmm. What if your father in heaven and that providential care such that we need not worry about tomorrow is, has that, that authority, that responsibility, the holy honor of, of that responsibility is given to the church to be the hands and feet of God in this world. That's huge. And I think that that is scriptural. And not, it's not to make a black and white statement of this is the only way that God is ever going to move in the world through right. us. You know, but if we recognized that that is our responsibility as the church, well, that's a huge indictment of the way that we've been living. If I looked to someone else and said, you have need, let me try to meet your need as much as I possibly can, not holding back out of security, the sense that I need to make sure that I'll be okay, because I trust that you, Byron, when you see that I have need, you'll make sure that my need is met. And then when you have need, because you've given too much to me, your parents or someone else, will give to you. When we have that sense of networking, that sense of community, that sense of church, we no longer have to think about worrying for ourselves. And I think the reason why we do not live more in that way is because nobody's willing to take the first step. And I'm not going to say that one person is going to change the whole world in that regard, but um, I think we need to take that bold risk, that leap of faith in and say, hey, I'm doing this radical thing can you please be the church for me? Because I will hit a point where I have need and I'm going to need you to be the church for me. So maybe a bit of a Debbie Downer like yeah. counterpoint, please. but there are, definitely, the there are definitely people who have done that in the past. Sure, absolutely. Right? There's a huge tradition totally. of entire communities doing that in the past. I'm not saying this is entirely new. I mean, the apostolic church, right. just to start there, you know, in Acts 2 and 4, 
And again, to get to a little bit of the biblical sense of where this backing is, I mentioned earlier that Jesus said, you can't handle all the truth. He then said, so it will be for your benefit when the Holy Spirit comes in my stead, Mm. because the Holy Spirit will lead you in all truth. Yep. So I think when Jesus says that, that the Spirit will lead you in all truth, and we see the moment the Spirit comes, we should pay attention to what happens there. So the first thing that happens we see is this glossolalia, but it's not just this heavenly speech that nobody can understand. It's this universal reconciliation of all people divided by language and culture being able to converse together because the Spirit has given them the ability to transcend the difference of language. Now, that's not to erase the beauty and significance of the difference of language, but it is to say that the way that people have been divided by nation, by tribe, is, is reunified in, in the Spirit. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is this rousing sermon that, that Peter is led to say this powerful message, and many people are, are intrigued and turned into the work of God in that. But then the next thing that we see is the apostles who were anointed by the Spirit start an intentional community where they sell all their possessions. And then it says this weird thing that that which they held, they held in common. So that almost feels like a little tension of like, how can you sell all your possessions, but then also have stuff to have in common? And we can it's get to that Bible. in a second. Contradictions are everywhere. <laughs> um, well, I actually think that there's, there's something valuable there. Um, what we see there is then the sense of common ownership. Yeah. It's not private ownership, it's common ownership. And then we see uh, the distribution of that wealth, not just to their poor, but the poor beyond them. So there's this wonderful book called uh, The Early Christians in Their Own Words. I think it was written by uh, Victor Eberhardt or something like that. Hmm. Um, and beautiful book, a lot of firsthand uh, sources. But there's this one from a centurion that I found really interesting, a Roman centurion who had all of this, all of these spiteful things to say about Christians and then said, so, you know, they're, they're cannibals, they're heathens, they're, they're whatever, pagans, mm-hmm. but they care for our poor better than we do. That the early apostles, these Jewish people, were not just thinking about the Jews in their immediate area, even the Christians, but they were thinking about who has need and how can we meet that need. And they wrote in their own practice that if there was someone who had need that they couldn't meet, that they would hold off from giving themselves that need until that person had that need. In other words, if there was someone who didn't have food and we didn't have enough food to make sure that they had their need met, that we would fast until they could eat. And so we see Paul talking about the famine in Jerusalem and this need to raise up money for the apostolic, the church in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And people have argued, have tried to argue, hey, look, this is proof of the unsustainability of that model. But I would say it's, it's proof of the unsustainability of that model not being done collectively. And Paul is, in fact, trying to implement the more collective version of that, which is to say, you are our church here. Let's have your cell of the body of Christ distribute and give to this cell of the body, which is in need right now, because they have gone all the way in. They didn't hold back for a sustainable model where they'd be okay through a famine. No, they went all in, and they made sure that they could help as much as possible. And in doing so, now they have need. And now you, as the rest of the body of Christ, you're required to help to step up. 
So it's a radical model. I have three questions. Yeah. One is globalization uh, and the scale of this. Number two is uh, the the nature, the essence of, and the use of power in general, mm. wealth or otherwise. Mm. And then lastly, the third one is to what end? Yeah. Um, right. I mean, so you will have the poor with you always. So help. I mean, to what end? Mm-hmm. So help them. To what end? Yeah. Like what? What is the point? And I guess maybe sort of point number four is the difference between you've already kind of brought this up, the difference between um, a spiritual end versus an economic end. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's a balance or um, an equation or or something. But those kind of four questions, uh, globalization, which you've already kind of talked about, but but even when talking about communism, like. Communes, mm-hmm. small scale, work and mm-hmm. have been sustainable uh, sometimes in in great examples, but globally bigger than that, mm-hmm. that's that's difficult. And maybe you know once you start to get too big, you you inevitably start getting into issues of empire. So yeah. maybe the point is for it actually to be small scale. Um, yeah. So then and then, do you want to start one by one? I, I just want to name them again so we don't forget them. Um, and then number two was power and the use of power in general, potentially economic power. Are are there any moral uses of Mm, like, is there any redemption to power, any good side to power? Well, or, and, and what that means in terms of consolidating and wise use of, of power or resources or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, right. The, the aspect of. Yeah, economic and spiritual. But then number three, um, being owed to what end? Deuteronomy yeah, to style. What, to, yeah. Okay, okay, so those are our four questions. Okay, and you can hold on to those? I maybe should just write them down. <laughs> so starting with the aspect of globalization. As I was saying in the beginning, the reality of globalization, not to make a moral claim about its goodness or badness, but it is a reality, and thus we are responsible to it. So... We cannot without retreat, like we can't just shrink back into like everyone can just shrink back into their smaller communities. I think at the the cost of the violence of ignorance, no, we can't. Mm. Um, it'd be like saying, uh, you know, you you learned that people are suffering on the other side of the world, and so you're going to try to forget that so that you are not culpable for it. Well, or if everyone does, if everyone follows what the plan is, then you know that all of the small-scale regional things will come together and that issue won't have to be solved by huge expenditures of, like, flying resources out to the other side of the world when there's an adjacent country that can do it, right? Like Absolutely. That gets like, maybe to that sense of that wisdom and distribution. So, I mean, these and... I think I there's there's a lot of to wisdom to it. Um, I would caution away from uh, the human structures of political institutions. You know, again, I, 
I don't want to make any strong claims about present political or economic systems only because such language is steeped with opinion and uh, propaganda and um, historical impacts that may or may not reflect the ideal. Uh, in other words, I don't think you can ever really win by saying, this is who I am. Someone's always going to paint you into a corner of like, oh, I'm a communist or, oh, I'm a anarchist or, oh, I'm, I'm one of, like, the ideal is no, is, has almost become entirely detached in certain people's minds from the practice. And so holding an ideal is very different from consider yourself part of the practice. So, so I like to talk about ideals more than, more than systems. Um, but what I would say is, to, to address your globalization question, we were not meant to be living in kingdoms. I mean, I, th I feel like that's one of the main messages of the we Old Testament. homo sapiens? Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, under God. Um, you know, God's people were being steered by God out of Egypt, uh, and then they're like, we feel afraid of you. And so then God was like, fine, here you have Moses. And then Moses was like, I am exhausted. And uh, Jethro? Jethro, yeah. Jethro was like, hey, I got an idea. Make a team. Delegate. Delegate. And so he did, and that was fine. And then the people were like, actually, you know what? We see these other people doing something better. Kingdoms. Let's try kingdoms. God's like, no. They're like, kingdoms. And God's like, judges? And they're like, fine. And then they do judges, and then that doesn't really work super well for them. And then they're like, kingdoms. And then they do kingdoms, and then they fall. <laughs> uh, that's a very, Two empires. Yes, that's a very reductivist viewpoint. But um, Church history. Or yeah, biblical, yeah, or exactly. biblical history. Right? With Charm Byron. Um, but I don't think that we were meant to be dictated by those big systems. Because again, when we talk about empire, right, the, the more, more structured the civilization, the more hierarchy. Right. And the more hierarchy, the more inequality. And that, I feel, is very antithetical to God's heart for justice. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm even trying to think scale, right? Like, you know, I, I have, I think I have like 1,400 Facebook friends. Yeah. I do not know 1,400 humans. Certainly not well enough to consider them like friends well, in yeah. a deep sense. Yeah. Like, there, there are probably not a majority, but a, a significant minority of people, like the human brain. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking like limits. Only is capable of really knowing, what, is it 150, 200 some people? Something that like might that, even yeah. be a little high, right? So so my question is in terms of the scale. I can have theoretical compassion for mm -hmm. someone on the other side of the world. And maybe because of resources and things, I actually can meet that need. But it's that. But at that point, it, it's non-relational. Like I was talking with my grandma. She has a really hard time praying for like missionaries who are kind of undercover, mm -hmm. you know, who their, their letters back are always like either encoded or this sense of like, Oh, pray for AA because she's struggling with, uh, an issue. And it's like, how am I supposed to pray for this person? Yeah. I don't know who they are. Yeah. I can't pray for numbers and letters. Now my response to her was you can hand it off to God and God can do whatever with sure. numbers and letters. But I think there's some, some issue with, there's still something like imperial or or working with the with the fallout of 
of empire. Totally. By by considering things too largely. And the division that has been caused by empire, the social, the racial, the mechanistic, the economic, you know, the, these divisions, the violence that is caused, uh, the way that it dehumanizes, it's, it's a breaking of relationship. That humanity is not whole, it is not integrated, it is not unified as one harmonious people because of these forms of violence. And so um, the goal of that restoration work, the, the economic redistribution work, the racial reconciliation work is about healing what has been broken in a broader picture of humanity to say that I as a person can no longer look to this other person and dehumanize them such that I am either subjecting them intentionally, actively, or passively, apathetically to violence. So when I think then, now I'm going to get more specifically to your question, um, to be the church, we can't dwell in the places of power and stay there and say, yeah, we'll, we'll send compassion. Even the idea of sending money, while that can have an impact, it's not relational. Like you are saying, you don't know this person on the other side mm. of the world. And so I think about the three R's of reconciliation. Uh, that Recognize, report, refuse. Not quite. Uh, civil rights activist... John Perkins talked about the three R's. Actually, I think they were the three R's of community development. Um, and it was relocate, redistribute, reconcile. And these ideas of redistribution and the work of reconciliation that happens on that sociological front cannot happen without relocation. That we can't look at someone and treat them as an other and then pretend to be crossing that boundary of other into relationship. We have to have skin in the game. We have to be engaged with them where their experience, their lived experience becomes our own. Now, this gets very dicey when you have the white savior trying to trounce into someone else's neighborhood and say, let me save you. Mm. So part of what I'm writing about in my book is a holistic and sustainable and humble way to engage in this regard. And that's far more than we have the capacity to get to in this podcast. But I, I do want to say that you cannot be adequately engaged in the need of that has been caused by economic inequality and that we are the perpetuators of by maintaining a hold on our capital. We cannot do that healing work without being approximately engaged too. And the one thing that I will say in that regard, because I think this is an important line, um, only go where you're welcome, only stay as long as you're welcome. That if you want to connect with a community and say, hey, I recognize that I have caused harm by my positionality within power, whether it be racial power, economic power, any other kind of power, I recognize that I have caused harm. I not only want to repent as a cognitive, emotional, spiritual sense, but to do the work of repenting, of, of turning toward and, and moving towards healing. That, that should only take place when you are being invited and welcomed and, and allowed in that space. If you have not asked, you're not doing it right. 
if you're not continuing to ask and be engaged in a sense that recognizes that your presence may in fact be causing harm in itself, you're not doing it right. And so then it is incumbent on the powerful to make themselves vulnerable by putting themselves in that position of being the potentially unwanted, of being always subject to the potential of rejection. And that's the unfortunate aspect of the last being first and the first being last is that the powerful, the mountains will be leveled. You know, and that leveling work might feel like oppression to them, but it's not, it's justice. And not justice in a... Um, retaliatory, retributive sense, justice mm -hmm. in, in a true healing sense that is not, in fact, good. And this is something I haven't quite hit on yet, but I would say that spiritually, it is also violent to the rich person in a similar way as I would say that it's spiritually violent to the white person to be inundated in whiteness. That it is, in fact, spiritually healing for the white person to renounce their ties to whiteness. Now, that doesn't mean that they are no longer white, but once you renounce it, you can do the work of healing, the work of connecting with the God of blackness, with the God of the oppressed. Similarly, to be rich is to be disconnected from God. And so the rich person needs to renounce the riches and then do the work of connecting with the God of the poor, the God of the oppressed. And part of that work is an active uh, redistribution of their wealth. Yeah, I think there's a lot of very, very good things in there. I think there's there's maybe just a, a philosophical question of uh, like reaching and overreaching mm. potentially. Like, you know, if you're trying to get people to level 10, is it easier for you to go to and they're at level one? Mm -hmm. You know, do you is it easier to meet them halfway at level five? You know, why and, don't you and, meet me in the middle? <laughs> Says the unjust man. Yeah. <laughs> um, is the other, you know, is the issue with, yeah, yeah. with that in a, in a bad way. But, you know, do you hold your ground st solidly at at the the absolute righteous thing? Mm -hmm. Do you do you move and accommodate, you know, to communicate across differences? Um, like both are justifiable and, yeah. and good in certain ways. Um, similarly, in this kind of question... And you're not you're not talking in in necessary absolute necessarily absolutist terms of you know immediacy all happening at once. Sure, um, sure. You know, healing takes time and things. But absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think in terms of, oh, like, you know, do do you meet people? You know, do you with oppression there's not just 1 to 10 there's kind of like positive 10 to negative 10 mm. you know and does it serve a purpose for a positive 10 person to go to negative 10 can you define what do you mean by that the positive in and negative in terms of like the 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 valleys and the mountains the peaks of power and the the pits of power okay um or or justice or whatever like there's a there's something right are 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 you asking it's a hard thing to like here and consider because one of the, the tyrannies of of ministry is that you need to con you need to communicate to these people who mm -hmm. are causing violence and causing violence to themselves and wanting to yeah it's not the pastoral task to rebuke that's the prophetic task <laughs> yes. and and prophetic or prophets have historically not been listened to 
and and it's a very lonely job, <laughs> lonely and potentially dangerous. Yeah. Um. But this this question, you know, the it doesn't say ah, there. There's tensions in these narratives, right? You already talked about tensions between take up your cross and, mm-hmm. you know, my burden is light or, or or things like that. It's so hard to figure out and and to figure out how to communicate and figure out how to like actuate the kingdom of heaven in this way and participate maybe rather than actuate. Um. You know. The every valley will be exalted and every mountain made low. Presumably, to me, that means the negative tens get back to the balance point of zero, mm-hmm. and the positive tens get back to the balance point of zero. Mm-hmm. A, a little bit of what I'm hearing, and and maybe you know, it's it's also totally valid if you're saying this, but uh, you know, do the positive tens have to jump to negative ten? Especially if we're not trying to bring up the negative tens to positive ten. Like, there's not a reversal. There's a a justification, this a realigning. Yes, absolutely. But that process of realigning will be scary for the people who have to go down, you know. And it, it might feel like they're going down to the negative ten. And I get this image. I th- I think it could be a little maybe nebulous. Um, but scripture also says that the. Uh, the poor will be exalted and the rich will walk away empty-handed. Right. You know, what do we make of that? And I don't want to have some idea that those who are poor now will be rich in heaven and those who are rich now will be poor in heaven. Because again, that's this retributive model of like, oh, because you did injustice now, you will suffer later. And I, I don't believe in that God. Right. Yeah, the point of queer theology is not to normalize queerness and like ostracize the straights. Like that's... Any sort of justice isn't, that's still retributive in some way or replacement. One of the things that we've talked about in my cone class is this idea of both ontological blackness and symbolic blackness. Mm. The ontological, again, this big word basically means in its essence. So those who are black essentially versus those who are black symbolically and what it means, maybe even ideologically, Mm. what it means to pursue this notion that cone calls blackness versus this idea of symbolic whiteness. Now, you can be white and denounce whiteness. You can where you where you recognize the harm of whiteness and you can denounce it. It is a lot harder for a white person to denounce whiteness than for a black person to denounce whiteness. Cuz black people are not the immediate beneficiaries of whiteness. Mm. They're not born into that system. They're not inundated inundated in the way that white people are. Right. And so in many ways they have the advantage of righteousness <laughs> that for them it is easier to not be tied to the evil of whiteness. There are black people that Cone writes about who idolize the power of whiteness mm. and become symbolically white in the sense of grasping at those power structures whether it be in politics or in capitalism or whatever else. You know, he has this very famous quote uh, toward the end of his life where he was talking about the Supreme Court, and he's like, there are no black people in the Supreme Court. And the interviewer was like, well, what about Clarence Thomas? And he's like, there are no black people on the Supreme Court. And it's a very bold statement, but, you know, what he's saying is that, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree or disagree, it's, but um, that Clarence Thomas had bought into symbolic whiteness. Mm. Um and I think that poor people 
can buy into symbolic richness. Right. Absolutely. You know, and that there can be the indoctrination where they say, that's what I want. That's what's good. Mm -hmm. But it is, I would say, a lot easier for them to not be tied to that idol, not be tied to that evil the way that people who are born rich are. And the thing about richness, because I think an important question here too is who is rich? How do we define richness? And I would say that rich is a relational term more than uh, an existential term. It's not just your condition because if everyone had a billion dollars, nobody would be rich. Now at that point, the money would be kind of meaningless. But that I in relationship to Jeff Bezos and poor. Mm -hmm. I, in relationship to someone who is without home or someone who is in some state of abject poverty, I'm rich. Mm -hmm. Which means in relationship to Bezos, he has an obligation if he were Christian, if if he were trying to pursue God, an obligation in the compassion and love of, of God to renounce his wealth such that I would benefit as the poor in the relationship. That does not then um, dismiss my culpability in relationship to the person who is poor. That just because there's someone who's richer than me and I can point the finger upward and say, yes, they're more of the problem, does not mean that I relationally am not still rich in a way that I could benefit someone else. And this is back to the pragmatic aspect, the, the practical theology if I have the capacity to make someone else's suffering less and I do not do that, I am not regarding their image of godness as being worth caring for in that way. That whatever sacrifice I might take is not worth the cost to make sure that they are suffering less. And, you know, in Matthew 25, Jesus separates the sheep from the goat. This is this, I, this eschatological scene where, mm-hmm. you know, the second coming of the Son of Man um, separates the sheep from the goats and says to the sheep on his right, blessed are you for when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. And they will say, Lord, when do we do this for you? Mm. That they didn't know that it was Jesus that they were doing it for. And Jesus will say, truly, I tell you, as often as you did this for the least of these. Now, that's not a spiritual term. That's a sociological term. That's the sense that um, we as human beings have made people less. Mm. We have deemed them less. That's not how God sees them. In fact, Jesus says, those are me. When you did it for them, you did it for me. I was there, either in solidarity or actually that was me. And when you did it for them, you did it for me. And similarly with the goats on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, because when I was naked, you did not clothe me. When I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was thirsty, you did not give me to drink. When I was naked or when I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. They also were like, Lord, when do we not do these things for you? They addressed Jesus as Lord. It's not like they're heathens. It's not like they're, mm-hmm. um, you know, rejecting God. And in some ways, some part of their spirit, not trying to pursue God. But the huge disconnect from how God is present in this world. They didn't get it. They fell short and they didn't meet the needs that Jesus was there. So I like to give this image, a little thought experiment that you can answer. If I told you, Byron, 
that Jesus Christ came back, and you believe me, you didn't think I was making this up, but you, sure. you really believed what I was saying, that Jesus Christ has returned to earth and is in Calcutta right now and is starving on the side of the road, what would you give up in order to make sure that Jesus was taken care of? Would you be like, oh, that sucks, poor Jesus? No. Would you be like, to hell with this education right now. I need to, first of all, be with Jesus. And second of all, make sure that Jesus is well. Yes. Probably, right? Yes. Like, you know, no, to me, I, I think anyone who truly says that they love Jesus, that's probably emotionally what their reaction would be. Mm -hmm. At least that, that's what I would hope for. And then if I were to say, well, what if that is already true? And Jesus is in Calcutta, and Jesus is also in our backyard, and Jesus is also in a lot of other places. Now, that becomes harder to conceptualize because, first of all, there are far too many people that have need than I have the ability to address. And so then it almost becomes, which Jesus do I help? Right. You know, and that, that becomes a complicated thing. But then it becomes a be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect statement. It's like, thanks, unrelatable. <laughs> Next. Unrelatable, but the perfect ideal that we must strive for. You know, like if, if you were in a burning house and all the people you loved were in that house, you might not be able to save all of them, but that's not going to say that you're not going to try to save any of them. You, you, would, you would run in and out of that house and dunk yourself with water and try to do everything you could to save as many people as you could. Mm. That's the emotional conviction that I wish people experienced when they saw poverty, when they saw any kind of need, when they saw racism, when they saw violence, when they saw... Um, queer phobia or anything that, that is harming someone's person, you know, for a quick second, the idea that, uh, f I think 40% of trans people die by suicide. Mm -hmm. That is a startling statistic. And that is caused by the violence that we perpetuate, whether actively or passively. That is not something that you can look at and say, oh, that's really sad. That should be something that we say, those are children of God. Those are beautiful. That, that is Jesus who is suffering such emotional peril that he took his life. Mm. And that is on you and that is on me and that is on all of us. And again, it's, this is not a shame message. This is hopefully a message of conviction that we have such a radical potential to change the world. That we can actually change the world. And that it starts with you and me being passionate enough to say, we want to change the world. We must change the world. How can we convince other people to be on our side, to be a part of this mission to change the world? Mm. <laughs> you had other questions. Should we get to some of your other questions here? I went off the rails a little there. As, as uh, is good to do. Uh, the second one was use of power. But yeah. that one, I mean, that one's very theoretical. It, and I don't think we have time for it. I would rather talk about to what end. Mm. And and maybe these two kind of go together, number three and four. To what end? Are we supposed to solve it? Yeah. Is this a material answer to what is essentially a spiritual problem? I think the material and the spiritual are in fact tied. And I did talk a little bit about how material riches is spiritual poverty. Mm -hmm. And not in the sense that blessed are the poor in spirit that Jesus is right talking about in Matthew. Um, a, a sense of uh, deprivation, right? That there's a spiritual deprivation of the rich mm -hmm. um, because they do not have God the way that those who depend on God have God, the way that those that they oppress have God. Right. 
um, if God has chosen to identify God's self and, and position God's site of engagement at the margins, then they do not have God if they are hanging out in the center. Um, so that spiritual aspect, I think, is tied to the pragmatic, to the economic, but to the question of to what end. I think the end is human flourishing. That I do not care, and maybe this is honestly a question that's irrelevant. Um, what would it, what would our world look like if we still had inequality, but everyone was thriving? Everyone had their needs met, but some had more. Maybe there would still be issues. I don't feel like those issues are the same kind of issues that I'm talking about. Like the idea of coveting. Um, this concept is not talked about in the poor. Mm-hmm. This is not the people who are starving, who are coveting someone's dinner. Right. You know, coveting is about idolatry of wealth that says that you who have over there who is idolizing your wealth, who's bought into this mammon, that I am straying from my God to idolize your mammon. That's what coveting is about. And so um, to me, the church will have in many ways brought the kingdom of God to earth when we can resolve not just poverty, but all oppression that is linked to disparity of well-being. So I I think one of the harmful things about um, some Marxists is that they take economics entirely out of context of the bigger picture of empire, Mm -hmm. which is racial, which is any kind of human subjugation. You know, I do not think that you can look at economics without intersectionality and have a holistic perspective. Like even the idea of the New Deal, um, which is this, in some ways, great practice in American history of recognizing needs in certain poor communities, but they're all white communities. It was still racist. So to me, that's not true, holistic, right. Everyone Christian got their economic together reason. as soon as it was white people suffering. Yeah, yeah. So this message is highly intersectional. And when we can say that uh, the school-to-prison pipeline has been disrupted because schools have actual funding and parents don't have to be working three jobs and being out all of these different hours and whatever and not being able to be present with their kids. Mm. And communities have all of the support and funding for good parks and for uh, actual meals that everyone can, can eat well and that nobody's worrying about rent, nobody is worrying about you know, all these issues. That will disrupt every problem that we see in our society. Sounds like Billy Graham. Get well, them get them the gospel. It'll solve all the juvenile delinquency. Like, get them the gospel. That'll solve all the problems. And I would say yes, but it's, but it's not just the gospel of the word. You know, in some kind of colonial sense of if I can dictate what you believe, then, you know, you are under my wing of ideology that, that you are now a Christian and I've converted you or whatever. It, it's, it's the gospel of God's love realized through justice in this world. So, it, so in that way, I do agree with Billy Graham. I just think he took it the wrong way. <laughs> um, so when we do not have need anymore, racism can still exist as an ideology, 
but it will not have the teeth that it has in our world today. Classism can still exist as an ideology, but it won't have the teeth that it has today. Queer phobia, sexism, all these issues, they, they can still exist as bigotry, but the systemic power will be fundamentally undermined. And I believe, too, in the renunciation of capital, we're effectively renouncing empire, and in doing so, moving towards the reconciliation of all forms of injustice and, and addressing our own internalized bigotry. So to me, when all of that happens, that will be enough. You know, then, then it's going to be a very different conversation about coveting and whatever else we can talk about then. <laughs> this is going to sound like a sassy comment, but Please. I don't mean it to be sassy. Sass away. Uh, I could imagine uh, someone asking the question, therefore, is this all, is Christianity all then just a social program? That's a, actually, that's a great question. I don't think that's a sassy one at all. <laughs> like what it like the Church of Sweden, for instance, sure. that is mostly social programs nowadays. Sure. Not to discount anyone in Scandinavia's like genuine faith. Yeah. But like a socialized like do you you know, one critique of socialism or communism or, or whatever, these like large programs, is that does it does it count morally if you're litigating people into moral behavior mm. and to some extent i mm. you know gosh uh it it could uh who is it who said was it were we talking last time someone else was saying like if if you could litigate all of the issues it's like this loss of humanity argument of like we would rather die and cease being humans because we die um from our problems rather than than solve all our problems, but at the cost of our humanity. Mm. And like, right. Mm. Cause it's such a compelling argument to say like, and, and hopefully, you know, you're not directly advocating for a totalitarian state um, or even totalitarian like faith or faith practices. Yeah. Um, you seem to have a lot of trust in, in humans or humanity. I can't tell which, um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, yeah, you hear where I'm coming from. Absolutely, yeah. So the first thing that I would say is that all of this should take place on a relational level. Again, the original problem of empire is the massively structured system. So I wouldn't want you to... You don't think it's the scale? I mean, I think the scale is is what gives it greater structure. Um I think the is, I think the scale is inherently a problem. Oh, absolutely. I don't disagree with you. But I but I think that the scale comes from the structuring that the structure will that empire is always seeking to grow and, and increase its scale. Um so relationally in a community where we engage and say this person that we know by name, that we know their story mm -hmm. has this need, we will meet this need. Mm -hmm. That is how it should take place. We have some kind of relationship with other systems, other communities, where we say, hey, this community has this need, and now that need has actually overwhelmed their entire capacity as a community. Therefore, we need to be in relationship with that community such that we can meet their need. 
and it should be taking place on a communal level that then expands to a network. It's kind of like a rhizome as opposed to a more like tiered kind of structure where there's this egalitarian sense of many different cells that are all connected together on one level. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I, so I am idealistically anarchist in the sense that I would far rather have no need for any kind of governmental system Mm -hmm. and have this entirely be human orchestrated in a loving and spiritual sense. Right, I agree. And I would say pragmatically, I am currently large government, large NGO, whatever kind of system Mm -hmm. with the hope that that would become obsolete with Christian compassion and charity. So the reason why I say that is because I'm not going to wait around for people to have their spirits convicted to say that people who are suffering need to have their needs met. Right. There's an existential, like, yeah, defanging the existential murderous tyrants of racism and poverty and things like that. That being said, it is highly important for me that the people who are oppressors are spiritually convicted. Right. Because I think that their oppressive status, the, the, the ability that they have to dehumanize someone else is to consider the Imago Dei dehumanizable and they've already dehumanized themselves. Mm. And so the spiritual healing that I want for them is where they renounce that, they reject that, they repent from that ability to look at someone else and see them as an object, to see them as something to be exploited, to see themselves as just a tool in that system. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm again, I'm not going to wait around for them to come to that point to advocate for justice. And so that's where it might take more secular forms. But it is absolutely stemming from my faith. And the ultimate hope is that all people would be spiritually transformed. And I think that with these systems gradually decreasing, there's actually more opportunity for people to be spiritually open to our unification and our sense of connection. Right. You might need to kick a teenager into a forest in order to get them to fall in love with the trees. Absolutely. And then after a while, maybe they'll go into the forest by themselves. Yeah. And so, so it might look economic. And, and it certainly is pragmatic in that regard. But this is all stemming from a very spiritual place of saying the will of God and the way that we experience God is in harmony with people, harmony with creation, harmony with ourselves, and harmony with God. And and that holistically is the goal. That I'm a very spiritual person and that my passion for this is very spiritually motivated. And so... I absolutely hear that potential critique. And I think that um, someone could even listen to this and still say, ah, it's still just economic. But to me, the way that I'm approaching this is highly spiritual and it is actually for the spiritual benefit of the oppressor. I think to love your enemy is to strip them of their power and to expose them to the dehumanization that they've caused upon themselves such that they have the opportunity to repent. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe there's a question left in, in terms of priority, mm. right? Like, you know, does this one have to happen before that one? Does this one have to happen completely before that one? Yeah. And I think the answer is probably both that, you know, it has to be it, at the core of it. It has to be relational, you know, but I don't think you would say that, you know, Jesus fed the 5,000. He mm-hmm. didn't spiritually get through to all of them. Yeah. Right. And, and as he didn't wait body, around for them to confess him as their Lord and savior before he fed him. Yeah. Right. You know, so, 
And at, at other times, you know, maybe Jesus did start primarily with, with a spiritual lesson, mm-hmm. you know, that, that there's not an absolute kind of calculation yeah. or, or approach or something. As soon as we start to get into that, we start to try to control it and, and it becomes contrived. It becomes empire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I've heard in this a little bit your your hesitation to jump directly into the Bible, and I think this is a thing where we're and I, I would encourage you to jump directly into the Bible. There's kind of this not right now necessarily. I don't know if we have time left, but um, I'm I tend to be biased towards apologetics mm-hmm. and or, or towards like biblical interpretation, even if it's not apologetic style. Um, but this this idea that you know what is the plain text reading of scripture mm-hmm. in this regard? Like who who determines what the scriptures quote unquote obviously say, mm-hmm. um, and it's not entire like it, it's it would be pretty hard to we we have managed to ignore mm-hmm. the fact that a significant amount of what you're saying is purely scriptural yeah, um, but I think some of the like end conclusions that you're reaching to aren't scriptural not that they're wrong but what and i think that's a limitation of scripture itself right like if we were to have a world like that where there were no um profound existential issues or results from from problems that stem from racism or poverty or or whatever um the gospel would probably look different oh very different um you know what what the meaning of the good news is would probably look tangibly substantively different not disconnected not you know not it would still have that thread of whatever jesus is or was but how much accommodation you know uh, it's like how how much did we determine what what the bible had to say because of how far behind god's ideal we might be Mm -hmm. um I'm, i'm thinking in terms of like liberation of of slavery the bible does not actually take all that much time or if any to tangibly envision a world where the horror of slavery doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. There's a guy, I think his last name is Todd. He happens to be homophobic and this argument comes kind of from that trajectory, Uh, but I'm going to repurpose it. So screw you, Todd. (laughs) Um, He argues that you can trace barely, but you can trace the line, particularly in the new Testament, but throughout the whole scripture of the, the, the positive trajectory towards ordination of women Mm. towards liberation of enslaved people. Mm. He says that you can't tra- trace the positive line towards validation of LGBTQIA ident- identity. He's wrong. Um, and even if he's not, that's Paul's limitation uh, and ancient Greeks limitation. Like we have completed the scriptural trajectory. Yeah. If there were a new New Testament written today, right. it would demonstrate that arc. Yeah. Right. And and the limitation of the Bible's capacity to do that is, is not a mark against the Bible or anyway, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Um, I feel like your idealized like like world economic view is even farther down the road. So in terms of the long arm trajectory, that I, I think that, you know, if anyone says like, oh, the Bible talks about money and talks about property and talks about these things, and this is maybe evidence that they are God's will, or, mm-hmm. you know, the Bible never envisions the the complete demolition of uh, these types of systems. I think it's relatively simple or compelling to say, yeah, it's because you were so hard-hearted. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing that Jesus says in response to 
a question about divorce. Yeah. You know, then why why did Moses say we could get divorced? Why did why did people in Abraham's time perceive him as being someone blessed with affluence or wealth or whatever? Yeah. Um, you know, it's because you were so hard hearted. So anyway, I just wanted to say that as a kind of affirmation of Yeah, that idea of the idealized world potentially being impossible, but it is not for us to draw the line of how far is far enough. That we should always be pursuing a more healed, a more righteous, a more holy and dignified and God-honoring world. Mm. And the fact that that's not spelled out entirely in the Bible is not a limitation of God. It's a limitation of of us mm. that we have not realized that if if the world that Jesus entered into was one where the people were so avidly pursuing justice that it already looked like a very just society Jesus would not be like whoa 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 you didn't go have to go that far <laughs> you know <laughs> right you know it would have been like some kind of honorific of their accomplishment and then a recognition of where they still had to go sure well, and because I think experientially, like, because because this is a communal thing, I actually don't know how shitty it was in the Middle Ages. Yeah, sure. Right? There are many ways in which we have improved since then, and there are some ways in which we have devil, I, I don't want to use that word, uh, we've decreased in righteousness and efficacy and all these things, right? Mm-hmm. So comparatively, it's really hard to know, and it's incredible possible to complain like even that classic thing i kind of say you know oh i stayed up till 1 a.m writing my paper someone else stayed up till 2 sure right like it's the goal it it doesn't it doesn't validate or invalidate either direction any of this work by comparing yeah the goal is not comparison the goal is flourishing the goal is healing and to some extent maybe this hops back a little bit to a thought and then I'll, i'll let you carry us out and finish that back to that kind of positive 10 negative 10 the amount of giving up Right. There's a lot of things like that I haven't given up, but there's there's a significant things, significant number of things um, or some significant ways in which like I as a person have given up a number of things and have done so because I have not because I've been forced to or mm. not because right. But because I have identified those those things as hindrances mm. to my walk with God, um, whether it's, you know, uh, ir- irresponsible use of plastic or materials or something like and those sacrifices, quote unquote, don't feel like sacrifices. Yeah. And I think that's evidence of the kingdom and evidence that what it, what you're going for is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, you know, you, you can you can force maybe someone to, to do something and then let them realize or hopefully and hopefully also not at the expense of a, a person experiencing existential poverty. Um, you know, they hopefully the rich person can see it and make that decision themselves and more glory to God for a single sinner who, who repents. Absolutely. Um, you know, absolutely. And my hope is always for the change of heart and not for the forced change. I, I truly believe that where this message starts, and this is where I'm going to start in my book, that it's a message of God's love for us. That is so great that it transcends all of our needs that if I truly knew, if I truly knew how much God loves me and what that means, there would not be another care that I have in the world. That would radically change my entire life. 
And it would lead me to saying, even if I suffer, even if these horrible things come that I'm not saying are suddenly good now or mm-hmm. suddenly neutral now, it's, it's not to undermine the significance of any of that that is problematic. Mm. But it's to say that there's something that is so good that in fact overwhelms all of that. And that the net positive will always be at this infinite point that is, that just, you know, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Mm -hmm. That is the kind of love that I want myself and that I want others to experience. And I want us to lean into that. And I think the way that we do that is by starting to lean in. And like you were saying earlier, it's not a jump to 10 kind of situation. I think that that's the prophetic side of me is to call out Mm -hmm. the system and to talk about where we need to be. The pastoral side is to say, what does your first step look like? And I think the important thing is that we are never calculating. That we're never saying, okay, how much can I give? That means that I'm doing a good job. Because really what we're saying then is, how much do I not have to give? Who is my neighbor? Yeah. Who, I, I, who am I allowed to get by not loving? Exactly, exactly. And the radical message of Jesus is always, love your enemy. <laughs> Pray for those who persecute you. It's the, it's the furthest extreme that we would never want to go. And I think when we actually do allow ourselves to go there, even just a step, we realize the goodness that is there. There's this beautiful scene that has actually been used antagonistically to what I'm about my message here. Uh, this is the scene of Zacchaeus. So he's a rich tax collector. He's known in his community for, for oppressing people, for exploiting them in their rates. Jesus comes and sees him and says, I want to go to your place. And everyone else is like, why are you going to this sinner's place? Mm -hmm. He goes there and the Bible doesn't tell us what he said to Zacchaeus. Man, I wish I were fly on the wall in that conversation. But Zacchaeus has this transformational experience. Well, if you did, it probably wouldn't work on anyone else because Jesus is so relational. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. (laughs) Keep going. Like, well, just the idea that like, there's there's one single answer that could motivate all rich people. Sure, to sure, sure. Thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, just for my own edification, honestly, and, and uh, spiritual intrigue. But whatever Jesus said to Zacchaeus, it struck a chord. And he says, I will give up half of everything that I own. And this is usually the place where people stop, where they say, see, look, Jesus says salvation has come to this house. He drew the bar at half. That means he gets to keep his riches and everything's okay. But what he truly says is, I will give up half of what I own. And then to everyone who I've exploited, I will give back four times what I've taken from them. Now, the majority of his wealth is from exploitation. Mm -hmm. And so even before the half that he gave away, if everyone who he actually exploited came back to him, who's like, hey, give me my four times, he would already be in debt. Then taking the fact that he's giving away half of it, and then that happens. And also, presumably the inability for him to actually know who he exploited or not. I I doubt he had records of all that. Anyone hearing that message would be like, ooh, I could get my stake of the cut. This is not a posture of a man saying, I want to keep my half and be good. Mm -hmm. This is the posture of radical abandon that says, I will not only care for those who have need, but also uh, acknowledge my own personal sin of exploitation mm. and seek to make amends. And that will probably take him the rest of his life to do. So the idea of salvation coming to this house was that he renounced riches. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm going to keep my half. He's saying, I recognize the need for reconciliation of those who I've personally 
harm, that I can't just take this universal posture of saying, oh, I'm going to be a saint now and, and care for all people, those who are in need, without recognizing the relationships that he himself has broken. Right. But in that, he's saying, I renounce the hold that mammon has had over me, and I will live out my life as a servant to God in a way that embodies radical recon- economic redistribution. Hmm. And that is the beauty of this message. And if we can take any step toward that, the question shouldn't be, how far do I have to go? But how much can I go now that I am, what is, what is growth zone versus danger zone? And I could never say that for anyone. Hmm. Like, there was someone that I knew who was inspired by me and gave away most of their clothing. And then they had a panic attack and ended up buying more clothing. So to me, they weren't ready for that message yet. And I would never want to force that kind of step onto someone or to say, you have to go all the way. And then they're like, I can't do that. And then they never move anywhere. Mm. Rather, I think we should be constantly leaning into the sense of God's heart for those who are in need and saying, how much can I give? How much love do I have to give right now? And and watch as that transform you. Because the Bible says, where your money is, there your heart will be also. And as we start to give, not just in money, but in, in our time, in our, in our service, in, in our sense of caring for others, I believe that we will be transformed and we're like, wow, this is actually really cool. Mm. And then hopefully not be like, okay, I did the thing, check. But like, I want to I lean into more of that because that's where the spirit of God is. The pursuit of, of the margins, the pursuit of the place that has been oppressed and marginalized and saying, that is actually the site of God's holiness and I want to run toward that. And so I might not be able to get there right now, but I will take my steps and I will move at the pace that I am ready for. And I will challenge myself to move at whatever fast pace that I can that, that is still within my capacity to do. And the limit to my ability to do that on my own, I want to lean into community. Maybe that's accountability. Maybe that's a support network. Whatever that looks like, we're not meant to do it on our own. But I think we can all be taking steps and not drawing the line of how much is enough, but saying, how can I lean into God's radical love? Amen. There's a, there's a lot there and a lot to do there. <laughs> well, beloved, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you, you. Go in peace. And Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! (laughs) 